drop down to chapter 7, verse 6. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. And dropping down one more time to, cha- uh, to verse 17. And the flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. And the waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. You can have a seat. As I said before, we took a break for Advent. We had been working our way through the book of Genesis. And I want to pick up where we left off before Thanksgiving. But I want to remind us really quickly where we've been so far. You see, if you remember in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 3, it's a sort of an introduction to the book of Genesis and an introduction to the Bible. And then the book is broken into 10 units, each distinguished by it starting with the phrase, these are the generations of. And if you heard there in chapter 6, verse 9, we start a new unit. These are the generations of, and this time it's the generations of Noah. All of the book, all of the book of Genesis, we said, is pointing to this one truth that God keeps his promises. You see, in the intro, in that first chapter, God makes everything out of nothing, and he makes man and woman as the pinnacle of his creation, and this sets the stage for all that's going to happen next. And we said that throughout Genesis, we see God initiating relationship with humanity through something that the Bible calls covenants. And these covenants, they're commitments between two parties. They're a unique sort of relationship that defines, or unique uh, commitment that defines the relationship between people, or this, in this instance, between God and humanity, that come with particular responsibilities, and they come with, with, comes with particular privileges as well. And there are blessings when these covenants are kept, and there are curses when they're not. And as we moved into the first unit, in chapter 2, verse 4, we saw it says that it's the generations of heaven and earth. And we see in more detailed description, not just the creation uh, of humanity only, but how God made particular promises to them and he placed them in the garden and he gave them responsibility. He gave them purpose there. And yet we also saw that mankind rebels 
against the loving rule of their creator in an attempt to rule themselves. And so having been expelled from the garden because of this rebellion, Adam and Eve, they have a couple of kids, Cain and Abel. But the rebellion continues, right? And it increases and Cain kills Abel. And Cain is cursed because of his sin. And yet God is faithful and he gives Adam and Eve a new son, Seth. And, at the, and as the first unit comes to a close, we see that the line of Cain is, is, is gaining some steam in the department of evil, right? They're continually becoming more and more increasingly evil. But at the end of that section, at the end of chapter four, we see that in the line of Seth, there are people who call upon the Lord, and it gives us this bit of hope. And then in chapter 5, verse 1, we moved into the second unit, and, and it was started with the generations of Adam. And we see how, even through death, the line from Adam to Seth and all the way down to Noah is filled with hope. Even though each person's life ends with death because of sin, all throughout, we're given these glimmers of hope. But as this unit closes in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, we saw in the last week before we jumped into Advent that as man multiplied on the earth, so did wickedness multiply on the earth. And everything seems hopeless, except for these very last words of verse 8 that say, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And we're left wondering, okay, we said that God keeps his promises, but how's that going to happen? So this week we jump into the third unit of the book of Genesis. And it's the story of Noah and it's the story of the flood. And most of us know this story, at least to some degree or some sort of uh, strange deviation of it that Hollywood creates, right? And you might be wondering to yourself, what could this story possibly have to do with God keeping his promises? Keeping promises is a good thing, but this story seems so very tragic. And even more so, you may wonder, what does this story have to do with us today? What does an ancient story of a worldwide flood have to do with you and me in this barn in 2020? Maybe God did this sort of thing back then, a, a barbarous world dealt with in a barbarous way, but we're more refined, more cultured now, right? He's kind of different now, isn't he? Isn't that right? And here's what I want to present to you this morning. First, I want to talk about, or I want to answer the question, why, why the flood? Why the flood? I want to show you that while the world was barbarous, God actually was not. He was just. And he was merciful in the flood. 
Does the flood reveal God's power and wrath? Absolutely. But in showing the extent of his wrath, he also reveals the extent of his grace, not to mention his consistency in his justice. Which brings me to the second question I want to answer for you today. Why is the flood relevant today? It's relevant because God is consistent. He was the same then as he is today. He isn't a different God. His power, his wrath, his justice, his grace, they're all the same. His character never changes. What's more, the world is very much the same today as well. But there's one important thing we know today that was yet to be revealed in Noah's time. And the last thing I'd like to do this morning is share with you three brief reminders for us from the story of the flood. So let's jump in. Let's answer this first question. Why the flood? You see, whereas chapter six started with all of this wickedness and one righteous man, chapter six, verse nine follows, or chapter six, verse nine and following starts with one righteous man who walked with God when everything around him was corrupt and filled with violence. And we're meant to understand this corruption as completely pervasive, touching everything. Verse 11, it says, it was corrupt in God's sight and filled with violence. Think back with me to Genesis chapter one, when God looks on his creation in the garden and, he sa- and it says that he, he, he sees his creation And it was good. And yet here in chapter six, verse nine, we see it saying that God looks on his creation and it was not good. It was corrupt. It was filled with violence. Verse 12 repeats it. It was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way. You see, verse 13 continues. God says to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh for the earth is filled with violence through them. God's solution matches the problem. They've filled every part of the earth with violence and now he will use the earth to put an end to everything. More specifically, as God separated the waters in Genesis 1 to bring forth the land, here he will close the waters on the land to destroy it. You see what we have in this section is God reversing what he did in creation. He's uncreating, if you will. He's rolling back all of the things he did in Genesis 1, step by step. But in verses 14 through 21, God establishes a covenant with Noah. He declares to Noah that he will establish this covenant with him, this unique relationship, this unique commitment that will define the relationship that he has with Noah and with his descendants. And he commands him to build an ark and he gives him instructions to do it. And those are his responsibilities, Noah's responsibilities in this. And he promises to preserve Noah, Noah's family and some of all the land animals and food for them in the ark. And verse 22 concludes, Noah did this and he did all that God commanded him. 
As incredible and extreme and seemingly impractical as it was for Noah to build an ark, I, I assume in a place where there is not water or, or, or a lot of water very near where he was. And yet all throughout, he never talks. He only obeys. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, it says that the Lord commands Noah to go into the ark, and it says, for I have seen that you are righteous before me. Now, you might think that Noah, by merit of his conduct, was deemed righteous here. As if God chose him on account that, that God saw or foresaw uh, Noah's obedience. But I think that would be misleading to the text. You see this same phrase that's translated for I have seen is found elsewhere in 1 Samuel 16.1 where God tells Samuel to go and anoint a son of Jesse as the new king. That would be David, right? And there I think the translation is a little bit more clear for us. It's translated, depending on your what version of the Bible you have, what translation you have, it's translated either I have chosen or I have provided. You see, what we find here is that Noah is counted as righteous, not according to Noah's deeds, but God's purposes. Noah, or God has chosen Noah. God has provided a person in Noah. Later in Hebrews chapter 11, the Bible says that, that it was by faith that Noah was counted as righteous, not by works. You see, Noah's obedience was the outcome, not the cause. And this reality is even more emphasized by the context surrounding. You see, verses 2 and 3, God tells Noah there are clean animals. He had already told Noah, take a pair of all the animals into the ark, but here... He gets more specific. Here where he talks about the righteousness of Noah, he gets more specific and he says, there's certain animals I have chosen, not on their account, but because I purposed it, to be clean. Take seven pairs of them versus one pair of each unclean animal. Now, what made these animals clean? Well, not any merit in themselves, not because this animal, you know, it's like, oh, well, look at this puppy. It's so cute. That'll be a clean animal. And oh, look at this, you know, pig. It's ugly. Oh, it'll be an unclean animal. No, that's not how God did that. It's because God purposed it to be so. In the same way, God purposed for Noah to be the one man through whom the entire human race would be preserved. And according to that purpose, Noah had faith and was deemed an heir to righteousness. The righteousness we first saw in Abel, who was murdered by his brother. And thus, verse 5, Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. What's amazing is, so we look through this first book of the Bible, we find all of these places where the story that the Bible is telling is weaved together. And a lot of those threads start right here in these first few chapters of the Bible. And we don't know 
If we didn't know all of the rest of the Bible, we wouldn't know quite where all those threads were leading or quite where they were going. But because we've seen the end of the story, because we know who Christ is, because we know the truth that the apostles will write in their letters about who Christ is and how it relates to everything in the Old Testament, we know that these threads start here, but they carry on to even bigger truths. They, they unpack those truths later on. So Noah took his family and the clean animals and the unclean animals, and he got, in, he got them in the ark. I don't even know how that works by the grace of God again, right? He'd obeyed God when he was commanded to build the ark and gather the animals, convince his family to climb in to this ark. I can't, I don't know how this morning went for you coming to church, especially for those of you who have kids and that moment when you've decided, okay, it's time to leave now. I need to get the kids from in the house into the van or into the car and how that process goes for you. I know how it sometimes goes for us. I can't imagine what this was like for Noah. And after seven days, the flood comes. Verse 11 says, the fountains of the great deep were burst and the windows of the heavens were opened up and they were all in the ark. But, but look at verse 16. Look at this. Everyone was in there that God had commanded and it says, and the Lord shut him in. God himself has personally pres preserved those whom he has chosen. God himself shuts them in. And in these last verses, 17 through 24, we see repeated one simple truth. The waters of God's judgment prevailed over the earth. Verse 18, verse 19, verse 20, verse 24. God's floodwaters prevail. He prevails. He prevails. He prevails over his creation always. And what God purposed, the blotting out of everything in verse 21 and 22 and twice in 23, it was accomplished. God's purposes will be accomplished, period. What God sets out to do, he does. And so why is the flood relevant today? There's, there, there are those who would want to detach the God of the Old Testament from Jesus and, and the God of the New Testament because they believe God has changed or the stories that they feel like they're maybe too harsh for a modern sentiment. Ironically, Jesus was not one of those people. It's weird. Maybe our perspective should be the same as Jesus. I'm Seems like a good course of action. We don't have to speculate on the significance of the flood uh, narrative for us today. We don't have to guess. Jesus tells us straight away in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39, you see the judgment of the flood 
was ultimately about Jesus. I don't know if you've been around very much or you've heard me talk up here very much. You'll find that a lot of the things in the Bible are about Jesus. I, I tend to say that because that is what Jesus said. I like, I, I like to be uh, in agreement with Jesus. The flood is meant to point to us to the coming judgment of Christ. Particularly to keep that judgment present in our mind. When Jesus talked about the flood and the judgment of the flood, he pointed to his own judgment of the earth. If you remember the flood, Jesus says, remember, I'm going to judge the whole earth. Look at how Jesus uses it in Matthew 24, 37 through 39. I should have looked this up ahead of time. Sorry. I'm just going to read it. He says this, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Interestingly, Jesus, his point or, or the thing he brings our attention to isn't all the sinful things that they were doing either in Noah's day or in his own day. What he points our attention to is the everyday common things that we do in our life, eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage. We might expect him to say, oh, Think of all the sinful things. You guys are all doing all these sinful things. No, his point instead is to be ready to pay attention. To remember that he will judge the whole earth. Jesus says there's a judgment coming and people will be going about their business and one will be taken and one will be left, he says in verse 40 and following. And I think it's funny, these passages have been interpreted by some to mean that some Christians will be taken and the unbelievers will be left behind. But clearly in the context, if you are reading it at all, it's the unbeliever who is swept away. It's the unbeliever who is taken. Just as those at the time of the flood were taken away by the waters and Noah was left, being left behind in these passages is a good thing. Is the flood relevant today? I, I believe it is relevant because there is a judgment coming that Christ wants us to be ready for. There's a judgment coming that Jesus himself wanted us to keep in our minds as we went about our day-to-day -day business, that he didn't want us to be so caught up in eating and drinking and being married and marrying that we would forget that he will return. 
And so what specifically could it remind us about while we wait? I want to give you three reminders from the flood. Reminder one is this, that God's judgment is perfectly just. See, nowhere is there any question in regard to whether God's destroying the world is just. The text goes to every length to help us understand that not only are God's judgments right, but as creator, he has every right to make that judgment. I want you to understand this. Not only are God's judgments right, but he has every right to judge. Understand that there isn't some who are judged and some who are not. God destroys the whole world. His judgment is over everyone. There is one judgment with two kinds of people and two kinds of outcomes. This single flood, it is destruction for the wicked and deliverance for the righteous. At Jesus' return, his judgment will be perfectly just as well. And while we may talk about any number of differences that might separate us as human beings, there's only one difference that actually matters, friends. Is your faith in Jesus or is it not? On that day, will you be redeemed or unrepentant? Will you be saved or unsaved? Will you be wicked or will you be counted among the righteous. That's the only difference that matters at the end of the day. But if God's never unjust, and I know I'm a sinner, I know I'm a sinner, right? How does that work? Reminder two, God's salvation is by grace through faith. You see, the Bible says that Christ is both just and the justifier. That through his death on the cross, he brings justice, but he also justifies those who are saved. There are two categories Injustice and justice. And God always falls in the category of justice. But when you think about justice, there's actually a a subcategory, if you will. It's called mercy. It's where the just person chooses to take that justice on himself and extend mercy to the one, to the offender instead. That's what Christ has done for us. It's not Noah's obedience that saved him. God had already saved and set him apart. The flood revealed tangibly what was already true spiritually. God had already purposed it. God had already promised it. God had already given him faith by which he was deemed righteous. And by that faith, Noah did what those who have faith do. He obeyed. And the result was when the flood came, the floods of God's judgment wiped out the wicked, it washed the righteous, saving them from the violent and setting them apart from the wicked. But we know 
that this didn't last after Noah. Noah was just a shadow of the one who would truly do this once and for all. That is Jesus. The grace that we gain in Christ on debit, Noah received on credit in order that he might point us to the one who would pay our debt. In Christ, we are made righteous and set apart. And when his judgment comes, that salvation and that setting apart that is already real and true will be clear just as it was in the days of Noah. But until then, what are we to do? Reminder three, God's commands are life-giving. So God's judgments are perfectly just. God's salvation is by grace through faith. And God's commands are life-giving. We can learn from Noah here as well. By faith, Noah obeyed all God's commands. It's a a point the text repeats over and over and over again. If you read it, and Noah obeyed all that God commanded, and Noah obeyed all that God commanded, and Noah obeyed all that God commanded. The fruit of faith is obedience, right? And even when in the interim, obedience may not have immediate positive results, even when that obedience may be met with suffering, we are still to obey. Can you imagine the amount of work that Noah put in? Can you imagine the blood, sweat, and tears that he shed building this ark. Can you imagine with me the ridicule and the persecution that he faced in his generation that was listed as corrupt and violent? I imagine it was only by God's grace that people who thought he was crazy didn't murder him. Noah trusting in faith not in any material or immediate evidence, continued to build the ark. But Noah had faith that God is a God who keeps his promises, right? And in 1 Peter 3, it relates the same picture to us. Peter is telling his audience all throughout his letter that it's good to suffer for righteousness' sake and to suffer for doing good if that be God's will. And then he comes to this place in 1 Peter 3 and he reminds us that Christ suffered as well. Not just for doing good, but in order to make ungood people good. And the transition from sinful rebellion to new life, it comes through the waters of judgment, Peter says. And when Jesus went to the cross, he took God's wrath and his judgment on himself for his church, the righteous for the unrighteous, the the just And justifier was Christ. And then he says for Christians, baptism symbolizes this passing through the waters of judgment. Not that baptism itself is salvific, but that it is an appeal to God according to what he's done through Jesus' resurrection for us. As Romans 6 says, in baptism, we share in Christ's death and resurrection. And so God's commandments are life-giving. From his first commandment to believers, right, to be baptized all the way through. 
His commandments bring us life. Even if our circumstances at the moment are difficult, and even if we don't understand why, So why the flood? Because left on our own, humanity will only multiply wickedness and violence. I think sometimes we like to think we live in a different world today. People are mostly good, right? I think that's only an opinion that probably people who live in a relatively safe, relatively wealthy suburb believe. You don't have to live very long before you realize that people aren't born good. We're all born with a propensity to wickedness. The situation gets worse and worse, but God keeps his promises. His promise to judge evil, yes, to be just, yes, but also his promises to bring good out of evil. And so the flood is relevant for us today. If It reminds us not only that Christ will return and bring a final judgment on all people according to what he's done and said, but that if we put our faith in the gospel, on, in how God loves and saves rebel sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, then then God shuts us up safely in Christ in order that we might not be destroyed by the waters of his judgment, but delivered instead. And that gracious truth leads us to see that God's commandments are life-giving and it draws us to obey them. It's that reality that we remember each week as we come to communion. That as the wood of the ark saved Noah, the wood of the cross of Christ saves us. That as the flood waters poured out God's judgment, that the blood of Christ flowed to take God's judgment for us.